Now I shall tell that which has happened to me, to my very self. I was going to the mines of Pharaoh, and I went down on the sea in a ship of 150 cubits long and 40 cubits wide, with 150 sailors of the best of Egypt, who had seen heaven and earth, and whose hearts were stronger than lions. They had said that the wind would not be contrary, or that there would be none. But as we approached the land, the wind arose and threw up waves eight cubits high. As for me, I seized a piece of wood, but those who were in the vessel perished without one remaining. A wave threw me on an island. After that, I had been three days alone without a companion besides my own heart. A passage from the tale of the shipwrecked sailor, a story written in ancient Egypt almost 4,000 years ago. The title of this episode is First Egypt. The subject matter of ancient Egypt is so considerable that I plan to do at least a few episodes just on this topic. I will not do them consecutively. Instead, I will punctuate the timeline of ancient history with successive kingdoms of Egypt that coexisted with the numerous other Near Eastern civilizations which rose and fell over thousands of years in this region as Egypt endured and endured. We should prepare ourselves as we embark on this study of Egypt for a culture in many ways distinct when compared to those that will appear over the centuries and millennia that follow in Mesopotamia, in the Levant, and in the Anatolian Peninsula. Each of these other cultures will appear and disappear in a comparative flurry of action and change, progress and decline. Not so with Egypt, which will pass its governance through the hands of successive dynasties for 3,000 years. The stability of ancient Egypt should not be exaggerated. There were rebellions and coups and changes in the nature of those who held power and changes in how they were viewed by their subjects. However, nowhere else in Western history do we see such devotion to maintaining the appearance and, to a great extent, the form of government. 3,000 years. Those of us Western history aficionados who look to ancient Rome as a bastion of political endurance must always remember Egypt and that long line of pharaohs. Now, before continuing with the podcast, I want to mention that the website is finally up and running. There are some kinks to work out and some pages to improve, but the episodes are there, as well as some source lists and other resources, including maps and pictures. Please check it out when you get a chance, and if you can, now or in the future, please support the podcast through PayPal or Patreon, or buy some merchandise when it is available on the site. As episodes accumulate, I will seek opportunities to expand the website, perhaps adding scripts for the episodes and more. I hope you're all as excited as I am about the website and the new possibilities for the podcast. Anyway, let's get on with Ancient Egypt. I asked myself some time ago, how shall I begin to describe ancient Egypt, the land of the pharaohs? 
I did not have to think long before realizing that the fundamental characteristic of Egypt, in all senses, geographic, political, spiritual, what have you, the fundamental characteristic is the River Nile. Here again, as in Mesopotamia, as in India and China and probably, probably countless other places, the first signs of civilization that we recognize appeared along the banks of a great river. This is not a coincidence. A river provides many of the things that we consider fundamental to human life, especially civilized, sophisticated life. First, of course, there is the water. Without secure access to water, even rudimentary life is nearly impossible. But rivers do much more than satisfy our thirst. There is life in the river, aquatic life forms that provide high quantities of protein and fat that sustain and promote human growth and development. And the river is a naturally occurring highway on which men can transport goods and people, furthering trade, establishing economic links with other people, uniting smaller clans into larger tribes and tribes into nations. But the Nile is not just any river. Though it was recently determined that the Amazon River is slightly longer, for most of human history, the Nile was accepted as the world's longest river. In the 19th century, that last gasp of the age of great explorations, adventurers sought the source of the Nile, navigating upstream into the heart of East Africa, into mountains and jungles, to discover the exact length of the river and to find its source. The Nile fascinated not only Egyptians, but also the ancient Greeks and many others throughout history, right up until the present day, though it has been dammed and tamed by modern man. Over 6,000 kilometers in total length, the Nile River is born in Lake Victoria, a body of water formed over millions of years on a fault line in the high altitudes of East Africa, where two tectonic plates are slowly tugged apart and the rains fill in the gap left by their separation. The descending stream, known as the White Nile, flows northward into Sudan, where it is joined by the Blue Nile, a river originating in Ethiopia. Though the White Nile is the longest portion of the river system, it is the Blue Nile which contributes most of the water and the silt which the coursing waters carry. After these two tributaries join, they flow as one mighty river and meander northward, turning back to the southwest for hundreds of kilometers before veering north one final time and flowing inexorably into Egypt before dissipating as a river delta and discharging its contents, earth, water, life, into the wine-dark sea. Besides its length, the ancient Nile was also distinguished, prior to its modern damming, by irregularity. The river followed an unusually predictable pattern of flooding, so much so that the Egyptian annual calendar was divided into portions of the year in which the river flooded and those in which it did not. Its flooding was also important because of those river contents which I mentioned just a moment ago. The Nile, particularly the Blue Nile, brings down from the East African Heights a great deal of fresh silt. Now, all rivers transport certain quantities of water and silt, which is simply fresh soil, shoveled up from the mountainous river bottoms as the river carves its way through virgin earth on its way to the ocean. The virgin nature of this soil is key because the Nile, during its flooding period in ancient Egypt, overflowed the banks of the river and deposited the silt gently over the face of the inhabited portion of the region. Now, floods are frequent occurrences for farmers and often a cause of short and long-term disasters, as the sudden violent flow of water can erode, erode topsoil and, of course, destroy habitations and other property. Not so with the flooding in Egypt, though, which generally came at predictable times and behaved in predictable fashion. When the floods abated, usually after four months, the planting season began, each farmer able to sow his seeds in fresh loam without having to rotate crops or even worry about exhausting the soil of his acreage. 
The ancient Egyptians divided the solar year according to the routines of the Nile River. There were 12 30-day months, four months generally corresponding to a time period in our modern calendar between, say, September and January. These were the inundation season. Early in this season, the river began to rise until it overflowed its banks and submerged the surrounding land. By the end of this season, the flood began to recede. The following four months were the planting season. Finally, this season was followed by the harvest season, in which it generally did not rain, and the river's ebullience was quelled. Of course, this was only a useful routine for Neolithic man, who learned, by force or by choice, to sow and to reap the land and to ensure a steady food supply for himself and his progeny. Prior to that, one can only wonder what Paleolithic man made of the Nile in its seasons. Indeed, much is left to wonder about Egypt prior to the appearance of cities, since the annual flooding, over thousands of years, erased all signs of pre-civilization developments, such as those developments in tool use or in the domestication of plants or animals. What archaeology for the Neolithic and previous time periods can be done is usually done in Upper Egypt, which, contrary to the Western ear, is the southern portion of Egypt, since it was higher ground and the source of the Nile. The northern portion of Egypt, that approaching the delta in the Mediterranean, was known as Lower Egypt. These two regions, Upper and Lower Egypt, prior to the time of the pharaohs, had become organized realms which both competed and cooperated with one another. Their various city-states were known as gnomes, N-O-M-E-S, but by the time of the late Neolithic, just before the Bronze Age, the once independent gnomes had solidified into northern and southern states, each clinging to both banks of the Nile and vying for a dominance that would, perhaps unexpectedly, come in the form of their union rather than that of conquest. The Nile River also played an important role in Egyptian spirituality. This idea will be explored in further episodes about Egypt, especially as the pyramids and other architectural marvels rise from the desert and adorn the land with man's audacity. But the river's predictability, its stability, obviously reflected some of the Egyptian character. Or did it influence it? Or both? Regardless, in many ways and in many minds, the Nile was Egypt. Without it, Egypt would have been just another realm among many in the ancient Near East. It is the Nile River which represents and sustains the land and the people. It defines them. Eventually, the Egyptians came to identify the Nile and their own country as some sort of simulacrum of the heavens on earth. At night, the Milky Way can be seen coursing through the dark sky, and Egyptians saw the Nile as the earthly version of this celestial river. So profound was the Egyptians' mystic connection to their land and their river. Pharaohs and pyramids of Egypt did not appear out of nowhere. As in Mesopotamia, the overt signs of civilization, the sprawling cities, the great feats of architecture, these would come forth only after the incremental growth in population and the establishment of proto-cities that would occur during the late Neolithic. As stated before, due to the annual flooding of Lower Egypt in the north, most archaeological data about Egypt from this critical period is found in Upper Egypt. This period, that before the arrival of the pharaohs on the Egyptian scene, is known to scholars as the pre-dynastic period. Now, the first human structure discovered so far in Upper Egypt dates as far back as 100,000 BC, 
solidly in the Paleolithic era. Right up until the year 20,000 BC, the early modern humans living in Egypt were consuming diets consisting mostly of large herd animals and fish, as would be expected for Paleolithic humans everywhere. Now, as the Mesolithic began, we begin to see evidence of the gathering of wheat and barley by around 10,000 BC. As in other regions discussed, such as Mesopotamia and the Levant, these plants were gathered before they were cultivated, as humans were still living as hunter-gatherers, though there was a slow movement toward a sedentary lifestyle. In Egypt, by 5000 BC, settlements appear across the upper realm and presumably in lower Egypt as well. Excavation of ruins shows that there was pottery in production, farms with cattle, crops of wheat, barley, and sorghum. The latter crop, sorghum, is a cereal-like wheat and barley, but with its origins in Africa and not in the Middle East. Copper tools and weapons begin to appear in usage around the year 4000 BC, later than in Mesopotamia, but following the same progression, which would lead to the working of bronze. In fact, the tools and the art and the pottery all being produced at this time in Egypt mimic Mesopotamian works in their design, essentially answering the question about which way the characteristics of civilization flowed in the ancient world. Finally, by 3500 BC, we see, we see the first proto-cities with populations nearing around 5,000 inhabitants, and the gnomes or settlements of pre-dynastic Egypt have coalesced into the realms of Upper and Lower Egypt. The stage is now set for the appearance of ancient Egypt as we know it from textbooks and storybooks, the land of the pharaohs and the sphinx and the great stoneworks such as the enduring pyramids. We have not gotten to the pyramids yet. These great cultural accomplishments of the ancient world would not appear until Old Kingdom Egypt was established. Early on in the modern study of Egypt, a three-kingdom system was created to distinguish between the different eras of this ancient realm. The system named these three eras the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom. The era of the Old Kingdom, however, does not actually begin until 2700 BC. While a unified Egypt, under a single ruler that would later become known as the Pharaoh, was already established by 3100 BC, 400 years earlier. These 400 years preceding the Old Kingdom are now known as the Early Dynastic Period. Before continuing with the podcast, I should define the word dynasty for those that may not know what it means. A dynasty is a line of kings that continues unbroken, more or less, from father to son, or to grandson, or to a legitimate heir anyway. Basically, it means the same family staying in power over the years. A change to a different dynasty means that someone unexpected has come to power, though it does not necessarily mean an entirely new family or bloodline. Typically, when someone usurps a throne, they either have some sort of blood connection, however distant to the old king, or they establish one by marriage. It would be easy, based on the name Early Dynastic Period, which doesn't sound as grand as Old Kingdom Egypt, to dismiss this era as somehow insignificant, as just the opening act for the grand history of this lasting kingdom of the ancient world, especially because the early dynastic period is not known for the great achievements of its, its succeeding dynasties. Nothing would be more mistaken, however. To get some perspective, just the early dynastic period lasted 400 years. This is longer than the United States has existed, and it only took two dynasties of kings to manage the realm in those 400 years, 
meaning that power was passed down in essentially stable fashion from one generation to the next for most of that time. Not only is this unusual for the time period in which Mesopotamian cities and their rulers warred endlessly with one another, it is unusual for nations throughout history, with the possible exception of China. Even Britain, a pillar of stability in the early modern and modern world, had a civil war less than 400 years ago and has changed dynasties much more frequently. So how and when did the early dynastic period begin? It began around 3100 BC, when a semi-legendary ruler named Menes united the two realms of Upper and Lower Egypt into one nation. Today, Egyptologists have determined that this ruler was likely the same person as Narmer, a man identified in early writings as the first ruler of all Egypt and the founder of the first dynasty of kings. He was originally the ruler of Upper Egypt and brought the two regions into unity through warfare. After bringing the two Egypts under his sole control, Narmer adopted the famous double crown of all Egypt, which would be worn ceremoniously by all pharaohs for the next 3,000 years. Again, carefully consider that period of time, 3,000 years. There is no tradition in our Western world that compares in terms of endurance. The double crown that he wore was a literal union of the two crowns of Upper and Lower Egypt. Upper Egypt had previously used a symbolic white lotus flower as its crown, while Lower Egypt's king wore a crown in the image of a red papyrus reed. Papyrus was a, a plant grown in the wetlands, like those in Lower Egypt, which could be used as a material for writing, as we would use paper today. When one speaks of scrolls from this period, they're often made from papyrus. Anyway, the two crowns became united, and they became a well-known presentation of the rulers of Egypt. I will post a picture of the double crown on the website at the earliest possibility. Already in this comparatively brief window of time during the first two dynasties of kings, we see many things which we have come to think of as fundamental elements in the story of Egypt. There are the kings, there is the priesthood, the religion of the Egyptians, and a nascent form of the famous Egyptian writing, the hieroglyphs. Beneath and above everything in Egypt was religion. We find it there in every stage and form, from totemism to theology. We see its influence in literature, in art, in everything except morality. And it is not only varied, it is tropically abundant. Only in Rome and India shall we find so plentiful a pantheon. We cannot understand the Egyptian, or man, until we study his gods. The preceding was a quote from Our Oriental Heritage, the first book in the 11-volume Story of Civilization series written by Will Durant. If you wish to educate yourself in Western history through reading, I highly recommend this series. I do not believe it is in print anymore, but you can find it used online at all the usual places. It will cost you some money, but the experience of reading it will surpass in excellence any course that you might take at the university level and it will provide you with years, maybe decades, of joy in reading. Durant's writing is not only well-researched, it is also a delight to read. Now to continue. A lot of listeners probably have a passing familiarity with Egyptian mythology and religion. Certain names may ring a bell, such as that is of Horus or Osiris, Set, Isis. A more select group may know a story or two about these ancient, now almost forgotten deities. 
Whether you know of them or not, let's expand and deepen our knowledge of the Egyptian gods and the religious rites with which their priesthood surrounded them. As with every ancient mythology and religion, and with those that have survived into modernity, we do not find a stable set of gods and theological explanations for their purposes and deeds. Just as the Sumerian mythology developed over time, with succeeding gods rising to primacy while older gods were still remembered and honored in some sense, so we also see in ancient Egypt. The earliest gods were sky gods, represented by both the fixed and the moving celestial bodies. Earlier, I mentioned the smaller districts that later came to make up the realms of Upper and Lower Egypt. They were called gnomes, N-O-M-E-S. Each ancient gnome had its own gods and its own names for them, which were not even always similar. In previous episodes about the Stone Age, I made reference to the lack of homogeneity among our earliest ancestors, that genetic evidence tells us that the peoples inhabiting various well-populated regions of the earth in prior times were actually much more distinct from one another in terms of their, of their DNA than we would expect, much different from one another than most human populations are now. I think that we see remnants of this Stone Age heterogeneity remaining in early civilizations here, with each gnome in Egypt having its own stories and beliefs that were not as similar to those of their neighbors as we might expect just as perhaps their bloodlines were probably distinct from one another, another as well. Of course, as we know now, these distinctions will be blurred and erased as city-states and gnomes are unified politically, commercially, and militarily as the Neolithic ends and the Bronze Age begins. Unique local religions will merge with those of neighboring realms and blend their gods into pantheons that have something for everyone and make everyone happy. However, even after unification and merging of belief systems, there still remained a good deal of variety in Egyptian myths. There is no one Egyptian creation myth, for example. The story was told differently in Thebes than it was told in Memphis, with different gods playing different roles and having different purposes. Like all early human mythologies, Egypt had sun gods, moon gods, earth gods, and so on. But these also differed from region to region. Many listeners have heard of the Egyptian god Ra, of his association with the sun, but the god Horus was also associated with the sun, as were others. Nevertheless, without getting bogged down in the minutiae of mythological differences between ancient Egyptian realms, let us consider the gods of the Egyptians who endured the longest, and even have some remembrance today, at least in history books. To begin with, the goddess Hathor was a great cow. She stood in the sky with the earth beneath her, while gods such as Ra and Osiris have much more exciting descriptions and stories, we should not under underestimate the importance of this goddess with the earth beneath her life-giving udders. Cows and bulls were worshipped in the Near East and in India and elsewhere for good reason, because of how they demonstrated strength and sustained life. And as pointed out before, they were the descendants of the Oroch, who must have commanded much respect from Neolithic and Bronze Age humans. Also important to note is this goddess's representation as a cow. All the gods of the Egyptians either began their existence in stories as animals or were strongly associated in one fashion or another with a specific animal. Ra, one of the gods associated with the sun, was often represented as a bull. So was Osiris. Horus was shown as a falcon in Egyptian artwork. It appears that the human form only came to Egyptian gods after the idea was imported from Mesopotamia and other nearby regions. As noted in the earlier quote from Will Durant, religion dominated the life of the Egyptian. This perspective on life is hard for modern people to understand. 
And oddly, for those of us living in the modern day, while religion means less than it perhaps ever has in terms of ruling and organizing our daily lives, we think of it perhaps almost only when considering moral matters, whether we are self-described as religious or not. The Egyptian, and adherents of many other religions, both past and present, did not make morality his or her priority when interacting with the spiritual world. This is not to say that there was no right or wrong, or that the gods were not deemed to approve of certain behaviors and disdain others, but religions, particularly ancient religions, were not defined sets of moral beliefs. In the early Christian era, for example, to use a period more familiar perhaps to the listener, Adherents of different religions and followers of different gods distinguished themselves from one another by their practices, much more than they did by their quote-unquote beliefs. Christians gathered on Sunday, Jews on Saturday. Pagans sacrificed animals to their gods, Jews and Christians did not. Jews did not eat certain meats, while pagans and Christians were less restrictive about their diets. Each religion had particular holy days, and if you participated in those festivals and other commemorations, then you identified yourself as an adherent of that religion. Defining your religious preference, please excuse that horrible modern phrase, just through a sterile set of intellectual beliefs is actually a very recent idea, dating back only to the Protestant Revolution. Now, it should not be overlooked that all ancient religions did have at least a modicum of interest in morality, private and public and they were not 100% focused on purely ritual matters. However, without a doubt, you can say that the most ancient religions were less concerned about the intellectual embrace of specific creeds than they were in ensuring a sort of public order. In ancient Egypt, there was a name for this order in human society, Mat, spelled M-A-A-T. It was a word rich in meaning, and it referred both to the order required in social venues and in the cosmos in general. Devotion to this mat, this order, further demonstrates that the purpose of religion for the Egyptian was harmony rather than moral righteousness, though the two could certainly overlap. It was the balance represented by mat that was of prime importance. Egyptians relied on the gods less as moral guideposts than as benefactors, and they practiced specific rites to entertain or appease those gods in return for favors. This remains a very basic human interest in religion, how many times have we heard how an essentially unreligious man finds himself in danger and silently begs an unknown deity to save him, and if he does, the man will do X, Y, or Z? Egyptians sought the gods, or the spirit world in some sense, to heal them from illnesses that the physician did not understand, to make someone return their love, to ensure a successful marriage or childbirth, and so on. Most importantly, they practiced rituals to ensure that the gods would look favorably on all of Egypt and ensure stability good harvest, and peace. However, this makes it sound like the religion of the ancient Egyptians was just a lot of self-serving rituals and spells. The gods of Egypt probably would not have endured in their spiritual supremacy for 3,000 years if that had been the case. Along with the amulets and spells and potions that characterize much ancient religious practice, there is also a great body of literature, a cornucopia of stories and tales about the Egyptian gods that not only entertain, but also move the listener with pathos and silence him with awe. Consider the story of the sun. For the Egyptian man or woman 3,000 years ago, the daily journey of the sun through the sky was no mere natural routine, but an epic all its own. Ra, the god of the sun, rose in the morning and acquired strength as the morning passed. He gave life, light, and strength to all in the world beneath him as he coursed through the heavenly vault. After noon, his power declined until he reached the western horizon. When he plunged into the underworld, 
and left the world in darkness until his return. According to some stories, at sunset, Ra vomited up all the gods he had consumed during his daily reign of power, and they became the stars and other celestial bodies that illuminated the night. Ra's rise and fall also became a metaphor for birth and death in general. He was an early example in this sense of the dying and rising god that I mentioned in the episode about Sumer, which brings us to perhaps the best known of all ancient Egyptian myths, that of Osiris, Isis, and Horus. Details differ in the available texts that relate this story, but the basics remain the same. Osiris, a quite ancient god associated with kingship, among other concepts, was married to his sister and wife, Isis. This divine incest seems to have been common in more than just Egyptian mythology, but more on that in a later episode. Osiris's place was usurped by his brother Set, who was seen as a god of storms and violence. Set disposed of his brother in a particularly violent way in one version of the story dismembering him and including an act of castration and spreading the body parts all around Egypt. Isis, the aggrieved wife, seeks out the pieces of her dead husband's body and puts them back together, resurrecting Osiris just long enough to conceive an heir, the god Horus. Horus grows and contends with Set, overcoming him and resuming a sort of dynasty among the heavenly powers. There are various versions of this tale, with Set and Horus sometimes being brothers, and the details differ in just how Osiris was disposed of. Subsequently, though, regardless of the differing details, in all of the stories, Osiris becomes a god of the dead, and his son Horus, the god of the living. But there is obviously also another thread of that dying and rising god pattern that we began to see in the Mesopotamian story of Inanna and Tammuz, in which we'll will continue to see right through the present day in the story of Jesus, a story which still evokes emotion in billions of people around the world, and which, which shapes modern society still. There are many beautiful and interesting stories found in the body of Egyptian mythological literature. We could spend time looking at the creation myth or the Egyptian view of the afterlife, but as I have done before, I am going to move on, because our goal is to tell the story of Western civilization, and while there is no doubt that ancient Egypt plays a role in the foundation of that civilization, there is a limit to how pertinent the details of Egypt's particular myths are. I am already planning on devoting three or maybe four episodes to Egypt, so let the aspiring Egyptologist take up Will Durant's book or some other and dig deeper and produce his own podcast about ancient Egypt. We, however, are on a course for Ithaca, where Odysseus was king, and for Rome, where Julius Caesar wished to be king many centuries later, and for Aachen, where Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day by Pope Leo in A.D. 800, and for many other places and times that will establish the foundations of Western history in a much more familiar way. Closely related to Egyptian religion was the kingship of the pharaohs. The kings of Egypt, not actually called pharaohs as far as we know until sometime around the year 1200 BC, were not just administrative leaders. Their very lives were tied directly to the life of Egypt itself. In the mind of an average Egyptian, the pharaoh needed to remain healthy and strong in order for the nation itself to be strong. Thus, the importance of a stable dynasty to ensure a living, healthy king to rule over Egypt and to sustain it from age to age. The pharaohs were despots. This is a terrible word to many of us in the West. It is a terrible idea for us. 
It conjures up images of madmen frothing at the mouth and commanding men and women of lower status to carry out their petty whims. To someone from the Near East, including cherished personalities known from the text of the Bible, such a form of kingship was wonderful. Egypt, like any realm, modern or ancient, was essentially run by a bureaucracy, which I will discuss in a moment. A man's life, then as now, was ruled by bean counters and red tape, especially if he wanted to do well for himself or try to change his station in life. Nevertheless, over all the bureaucrats, over all those bureaucrats ruled an all-powerful king. He may have been distracted at times by the pleasures of his court and by the sycophants with which he inevitably surrounded himself, but he was eternally capable of cutting through the red tape, of hacking through the Gordian knot and making an irrevocable decision for the good of Egypt or for the, or for the good of any one man. He was not elected. He did not owe his office to any political lobby or to any portion of the fickle electorate. He could do as he pleased, for better or worse. Even in the West today, we have a latent longing for this kind of rulership. In our fairy tales, we love to hear of the good king, who, without consulting a cabinet or a focus group, makes a free decision to do something good for his kingdom or simply for one of his individual subjects, something which no enemy, national or personal, could undo. We cherish our democratic ideals in the West, but we love to read of Charlemagne or of King Arthur, of an all-powerful but essentially good ruler who dictates decisions to his subjects, but these decisions are always based on wisdom and goodwill. Now, certainly, we won't fool ourselves into thinking that pharaohs or any despot of the past or present ever really ruled with only the well-being of his subjects in mind, ever wielded power without corruption, but can we say any different of any democratically elected politician of our own time? or of any time in the past. Regardless, it is enough to say, as we continue our approach to the study of Western history, that ancient Egyptians valued their pharaohs highly. This is not due to simple-mindedness or lack of intellectual sophistication. People who lived under kings and pharaohs and emperors and other supreme or not-so-supreme rulers always appreciated the importance of their overlords and their well-being, because these individuals preserve stability in society, and stability especially in Egyptian society, but valued everywhere, is key to the prosperity of a people and a nation. In the West, living for centuries as we have with democratically elected governments, we may only be vaguely familiar, for example, with the phrase, the king is dead, long live the king, and may find it somewhat repellent to our instincts. But this phrase is not the exclamation of an oppressed simpleton, too ignorant to understand his own miserable state. It is a very well-considered desire, to know that when one king dies, the next king is immediately known and in power. This is what the Egyptians desired, and is why their administrative system lasted so long. The endurance of Egyptian governments under the pharaohs is due, then, to the desire, perhaps stronger in ancient Egypt, but present in all human societies, for stability. What, you might ask, was the danger of instability? If you have lived in the West all your life, you may think that you have seen some instability in recent years particularly with the riots in the U.S. Capitol at the end of the Trump presidency. Any historian, however, could assure you that you have no idea what real instability is when a nation finds itself in between governments. Whenever a monarch died in the past, his subjects immediately worried that any one of various powerful factions might usurp the throne or battle with other factions to secure their power. You might think of monarchies proceeding with orderly transitions from father to son, from king to crown prince, but this idea of primogeniture is actually somewhat modern. In the ancient past, when the king died, the throne was available to whoever was strongest to take it. Frequently, this was not a direct descendant of the king, but could have been any relative or friend of the royal family, 
and sometimes the king's death only opened the door to a strong military leader. In ancient Egypt, though there are certainly times of chaos and confusion between reigns, especially when the dynasties change, these transitions in general were remarkably stable. It begs the question, was the unusual stability due to something in the Egyptian character, or was this character formed by the system that ensured the continuity of the pharaoh's reign? The kingship was ideally passed down from father to son, just like any trade, like a carpenter might pass his skills on to his son as well as his property and his business. One goal of such passage from father to son was to keep the same character in place, the same competence, due to the same blood running in their veins. With regard specifically to the kingship, certainly the, the goal of primogenitor and of passing on power to the firstborn son is to ensure some possibility of the same wisdom or strength of character in the succeeding monarch. However, if you have studied history at all, you know very well that the sons of great men are rarely as great as their fathers. There are glorious exceptions, for example. The Alexander the Great's father, Philip, possessed extraordinary courage and cunning in forming the army and the nation that his son would lead to empire. And his son went on to do much more than the father could have imagined, seizing control of the known world in his, with his father's small but efficient army. But we see numerous examples of powerful men whose sons either fail to meet their father's level of accomplishment or, in many cases, actually humiliate the memory of their fathers with their ineptitude. Think of Napoleon, who conquered Europe. His sons do not replicate his achievement, though his nephew would become Emperor of France decades later. Henry II of England was followed by his son, the infamous King John, whose loss of much of his father's territory is responsible for the fact that no succeeding monarch of England has ever taken the name John again. Charlemagne's legacy is squandered a generation after his death. Even when we do see this passage of power from father to son succeed, its success is almost always short-lived. The Egyptians had a solution to this dilemma. It is a solution that lives on into our present day, in the form of many of the existing governments on our planet. Knowing ahead of time that pharaohs would not demonstrate continued vigor and wisdom, the Egyptians had in place a man known as the vizier, V-I-Z-I-E-R, this man was frequently the one who held the real power in Egypt. Yes, the pharaoh could turn himself away from the pleasures and distractions of his court and make political decisions any time he so choose. He chose to do so, but more often these matters were left to the vizier, a man chosen for his capabilities and administration. This individual had the keys to the kingdom. This phrase might be familiar if you have read the Bible. The holder of the keys to a kingdom was the steward who kept things in order for the king while he was away or if he simply chose to leave such matters in the hands of others. In modern terms, this is essentially what it means to be a prime minister. The prime minister handles matters for the king or queen and merely brings them to the monarch for approval or disapproval, sparing his ruler the messy work of management. This was the vizier for the pharaohs. While evidence of their role is scanty in this early dynastic period, as time goes by, viziers will be heralded and remembered as much as the pharaohs for their reigns and their accomplishments.
Just a step down from the vizier in terms of power and importance in Egyptian society was the priesthood. This body of men and women wielded a great deal of influence in ancient Egypt, and though the pharaohs and their viziers might wield a power that was technically despotic, they always had to consider what the priesthood wanted before they made a move. From our modern perspective, we might imagine that the priests of ancient Egypt were spiritual advisors, but there was actually very little spiritual advisement in Egyptian or really any ancient religion, not from priests anyway. The job of a priest was not to be a pastor to his flock, but rather to carry out the rituals and sacrifices which the gods required in exchange for peace and stability in the world. They also kept and cared for the books on healing, on magic, and stories about the gods. They wrote horoscopes. They maintained the calendar. They even performed dances and sang as part of their efforts to protect Egypt from evil. Frequently, these singing and dancing members of the priesthood were women. But the priests were not just performing rituals for their own satisfaction. Every event in a man's life was wrapped in religion and ritual. From conception to death, there were rituals and ceremonies to be performed to ensure that the well-being of each man and woman's life. There were purification rituals and fires to be lit and maintained and processions to be led. Since the priesthood was so involved in these rites, which were an integral part of the pharaoh's life as well as every subject's life, achieving stable government without staying on the good side of the priesthood was nearly impossible. When we get to the episode on New Kingdom Egypt, an era that occurred around the same time as many of the biblical stories in Genesis and Exodus, we will see how it went for a pharaoh who dared to cross the priesthood. As always, when we consider the spirituality of the ancient Egyptian, in addition to this formal religion, Egyptian beliefs and practices were almost certainly complemented by independent workers of folk magic. The fashioners of amulets, the brewers of potions, witches and healers, all of these people rounding out the mysticism of the ancient Egyptian. Finally, we come to the scribes. Scribes were the bureaucrats of ancient Egyptian government. They controlled information in the form of texts written and stored to preserve data about government, about trade, about military matters. Who owed what in taxes? How many soldiers were on which frontier? Who commanded them? And so on. They were in Egypt the harbingers of that first offloading of information from the human mind to outside sources. For all of our existence, men and women had kept the knowledge needed to manage the surrounding world in their heads. What herbs to use for healing, how to fashion a blade, when to plant wheat, where to hunt game, and so on. This mass of information had been passed down from mind to mind for a hundred thousand years or more. Now the scribes, they used stylus and papyrus to record these matters for the first time and relieve the human mind of the burden of memorization. Now the information could be found and consulted when needed, and otherwise forgotten. A similar process has been happening since the mid-20th century with the advent of computers and later the internet, but at a much faster rate. We rely on computers to, to store not only vast amounts of data, but even personal information. Many people today don't even know their own phone number, or that of their loved ones, because their phones keep all that information for them. But more on this phenomenon when we get to the podcast series on Contemporary Times. Now, becoming a scribe in ancient Egypt required years of training, and it required one to be literate. Like many other trades, it was usually passed down from father to son. 
But the most notable thing about the scribes, for our purposes, was their connection to that marvelous new development in human society, writing. Ancient Egyptian writing is not anything that we can easily relate with from our modern perspective, possessing as we do an alphabet. It would be some time in the ancient world before the utility of an alphabet would be discovered. In the beginning, people all over the ancient Near East first began to write using symbols and pictures that represented ideas or words. These are called pictographs. Now, the classic form of Egyptian writing symbols, which many of us today are probably familiar with, having looked at videos or pictures of the tombs of Egyptian kings, are known as hieroglyphs. This writing system did not remain static, though, changing over time, retaining many of the same essential qualities as the first hieroglyphic scripts that date back to the 4th millennium BC. The system of writing, adapting though it did over the centuries, remained in use for thousands of years, even after the pharaohs were gone. In the late 4th century AD, all non-Christian temples in the Roman Empire, which included Egypt at that time, were shut down, and the comprehension of hieroglyphic writing faded quickly, so that it was indecipherable to those living in the Middle Ages just a few centuries later, and it would not be deciphered again until the 19th century. Now, most listeners are probably familiar with hieroglyphs written on the stone walls of pyramids, but most writing at this time was probably done on papyrus, uh, done by scribes on a type of reed which grew in wetlands near the Nile River, which could be flattened and turned into rolls of a paper-like product, which were rolled up into scrolls after hieroglyphs were written onto them and stored in libraries or sent as letters. Unfortunately, as with much from this time period, papyrus does not withstand the passage of time and exposure to the elements very well, and we have very little of it to study today. However, we do know that the papyrus reed remained a valuable material for writing in the ancient world, and was exported to various locations around the Mediterranean for this purpose. I've not really done justice to any of these topics from ancient Egypt, but we have to be moving on. Later episodes will tell of different dynasties in Egypt as time passes in the rest of the ancient Near East. There is only so much time that we can spend on a subject like this without changing the focus of the whole podcast, which, after all, is the history of the West, not a seminar on Egyptology. What I have said so far will have to suffice in establishing that the history of the ancient Near East plays a fundamental role in the history of Western civilization. When we begin to cover ancient Greek history, it will be seen that the kingdoms of the Near East, and particularly Egypt, at the very least provide a counterpoint to Greek ideals. But really, those ancient kingdoms of Mesopotamia, of Anatolia, and of North Africa are much more than that. For example, the great king of Persia is not simply a terrible adversary, as he is horribly and inaccurately portrayed in popular films like 300 about the Greek defense at Thermopylae. He is an employer for thousands of Greek mercenaries and the ruler of thousands more living across the Aegean and Anatolia. And the Egyptian pharaoh is not simply a despot supported by a strange religion. Greek writers like Herodotus reveal the fascination and respect that the Greeks felt for the majesty, mystery, and antiquity of Egypt. So our digression into the history of these realms is warranted, but at the same time should not be overdone. We know enough about Egypt now to be able to understand better when the Greeks referenced the land of the pharaohs in their works. And we have created a setting for the Hebrews that will eventually enter into and come out of this land. They will later establish themselves in Canaan, just up the eastern Mediterranean coast from Egypt, 
and set the stage for what will become perhaps the most fundamental notion in Western history, Christianity. So as alien as some of these cultures may seem, if we dig down far enough, we find that they are actually strong roots intertwined with other roots that we may have been expecting to find beneath the tree of Western history. Roman law, Greek philosophy, and Christian theology, they support this tree alongside Near Eastern despotism and mysticism, all these roots extending deep down into the soil beneath the tree. This soil is the prehistory of man. Following the roots down, they taper into oblivion, and we cannot follow them into anything coherent. But when we follow these roots upward, we see how they all combine and become something more and more familiar to us, something recognizably Western. In the next episode, we will look at the land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey, as the ancient Hebrews will describe it when coming out of the desert of the Sinai Peninsula. When last we discussed this region, the Natufians were advancing into the Neolithic, ahead of all their neighbors. We will also look at the developing city-states of Phoenicia and their contribution to Western history, especially with regard to communication in the form of trade and the alphabet. And before I go, I want to remind everyone again of the new website, western-traditions.org. That is western-traditions.org. Please go there and have a look around. I will be fleshing it out as time goes by and hopefully enriching the podcast experience with transcripts, source lists, maps, and more. And until next time, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.